How many of you who are, who are here this morning grew up saying the Apostles' Creed? How many of you all know that? A good number of you. It's a statement of faith uh, from somewhere around the fourth century, affirmed by a lot of different branches of the Christian church, and in it are three I believe statements, headlined by faith in God the Father, Jesus Christ, His only Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's an affirmation in all three sections, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the section under Jesus is the longest, and it starts like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are only two names that are mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. The first being the Virgin Mary, and the second being a man named Pontius Pilate. Both of these people had their roles to play in the story of Jesus. One, her name is spoken because she helped to bring Jesus into the world, giving birth to him. The second being a man by whom he was crucified and taken out of the world. What an unfortunate time to be the governor in Palestine, Pontius Pilate, and to have your name remembered that way, always an obscure name in history, hardly ever mentioned anywhere else, but here he is remembered always, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The scriptures show a reluctance in this man, Pontius Pilate, to have Jesus killed. But nonetheless, he was the one who gave the final word to have Jesus crucified. And so the passage in front of us is a sad one. Sin abounds everywhere in it. Every character that is in this story shown to us is a sinful person showing their sinfulness except for Jesus, the sinless Savior. And he was the one that was delivered over to be crucified. I've got three main headings today to guide us through this passage. The first is the problem for Pontius Pilate. There's a problem there for him to deal with. The second is the crowd chooses a savior. They're given an opportunity to say, we want this man or this man. And they make their choice. And the last is the sinful, the sinless for the sinful. We see the exchange that is made there between a Jesus and another man. So this morning we start out with the problem for Pontius Pilate. We saw last week that all the chief priests, scribes, elders, they all came together to make a decision that Jesus was deserving of death. But they knew that they did not have the authority to condemn him to death. They needed to go to the Roman leader, the Roman governor, in order to have that happen. And they needed to convince him that Jesus needed to die. And so in their minds, the battle to have Jesus killed had only begun. And so it was easy for them to carry out their mock trial, bring in false witnesses, come to their predetermined conclusions 
that they were going to have Jesus killed no matter what. So they could carry that out. They had the ability to do that themselves, but now they had to go in front of a man over whom they had no power. They needed some political maneuvering here. They would need to say all the right things and do all the right things as they stood before Pilate to ensure that Jesus would die. There are other documents out there about Pilate's life. And in them we find out that he had no love for the Jews. He was known as a cruel man to them. His time as governor was a rocky one. He led in this role for 11 years. He was the longest man to serve in this position as governor over Palestine. But afterwards, he was deposed. He, uh, eventually, the Caesar had enough of him and deposed him, and he would never be heard from again. And so when these priests show up that morning with their prisoner with them bound, I doubt that they got a warm welcome. And no doubt they would have had discussions beforehand on what the best way was to engage Pilate, what they needed to say, maybe what they needed to be sure that they didn't say. And so there in verse 1 we see that they held a consultation together. What do you think they were talking about? How they were going to stand in front of Pilate, what they were going to say to him to make sure that they got their way. It says they bound Jesus then and led him away and then delivered him over to Pilate. And we see in Pilate's question for Jesus as he approaches what their strategy was. Because Pilate asked Jesus a question. He says to him, are you the king of the Jews? Now do you think that Pilate got that on his own? Do you think that he just came up with that on his own? He thought that maybe Jesus was the king of the Jews out of his own mind? Or do you think that somebody suggested that to him? Certainly, these chief priests suggested that very thing. They were making Jesus out to be a political threat to Rome. And so they probably said something like this. This man says that he is the king. Now you know, Pilate, that we believe that there is no king other than Caesar. We only serve Caesar, but this man says he does not. And he wants people to come and follow him, not Caesar. What says you, Pilate? What are you going to do about it? What if he starts another insurrection? What then? And so then comes the question from Pilate to Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer is short and sweet. He says, you have said so. may have been just like, you said it. The priests make more arguments against Jesus and accusations. So then Pilate turns again to him and says, don't you want to defend yourself? Don't you have anything to say about all these accusations that they are lobbying against you? And just like he did when he was on trial before the priests, we read that Jesus said nothing in return. Anytime that he was accused, he said nothing. And so like 
The sheep or the lamb before its shearers is silent. So was our Savior. And we read then that because of that, Pilate was amazed. I mean, who is going to stand here in front of this man who has the power to put someone to death just because he wants to? Who's going to stand here in front of him and say nothing? And as we said last week, only a man who is committed to his own death. Jesus knows what his task is. And it is to die for sinners. He will not defend himself. In all four gospel records, Pilate shows himself as someone who does not want to put Jesus to death. And so here we have a godless outsider. Someone who does not know the Lord. But somebody who does know justice, whether he's going to do it or not, that's up to him. So he knows an innocent man when he sees him. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that he knew that the chief priests were envious of Jesus. That's why they brought him. So he's able to perceive that. He can tell from the scene in front of them that this is a setup, and he wants to get Jesus released. He wants nothing to do with this. As a matter of fact, we read in one of the other Gospels that even Pontius Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this man. I had a dream about him today. So Pilate is already disturbed over everything that is taking place. He wants to wipe his hands of this. He wants to release Jesus. And he's going to do everything he can to try to make that happen. So how was it possible that Pilate would follow through with this evil Deed, and then have his name remembered forever for what he has done. The crowd. If you've been with us now for several months, again and again, the crowd makes an appearance. Generally speaking, the crowd in Mark is not portrayed as a good thing. They're just the rabble that's out there. Bunch of people out there who are very fickle in their hearts. One day they're this thing, one day they're that, one day they're believing, one day they're not. One day they're following, one day they fall behind. The crowd. They make an appearance. They come up and ask Pilate to release one prisoner, we're told, like he always did during the Passover. So here they are, they're coming up, they're separate from all the priests. And if you remember back at the beginning of chapter 14, uh, the, the, the priests came together and they wanted to do all of this in secret. They didn't want anybody else to know what was going on because they knew that the crowd might rise up against them and, 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 and reject everything that they were going to do. Well, they didn't want that. They wanted to be all this done in secret, do it in stealth, sweep him away, have him killed before anybody knew what was happening. But here in the story, what we see is the crowd decided they're going to come up to Pilate's place too because they wanted a prisoner released to them as Pilate always did. And we're told here in the story that they were going to ask for someone. 
So we understand that the crowd are, is, the, is the group of people who came up asking for this particular man to be released to them. There's no way that Pilate would have suggested the name Barabbas to them, the insurrectionist who had committed murder recently. He's not going to say, do you want this man to be released to you? No, the crowd wants Barabbas. It's quite possible that when this shouting crowd arrives, or if this shouting crowd did not arrive, all of these things that are taking place, Pilate sees through it all, he could have just sent those priests away laughing at them. This is ridiculous. Be on your way. But because the crowd comes up, it changes the dynamic of the situation. Crowds do this to leaders, don't they? Angry, shouting people change the minds of their leaders because crowds create fear. Crowds can become mobs. Pilate has seen it. Again, Barabbas would have been part of one of those mobs at some point. That's how we get to verse 15. We see what it was that swayed the opinion of Pontius Pilate. It says, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them not Jesus, but Barabbas. The priest somewhere in the middle of all that's going on, Mark doesn't tell us exactly what they said to the crowd. This crowd walks up looking for a man to be released to them. Somehow the priests stir them up to turn against Jesus, the man that they had loved following only days before. The priests said something to them to change their opinion. To where now they did not demand that Jesus would be released, but that Barabbas would. And so now Pilate, wanting to satisfy the crowd, had Jesus scourged. And again and again, as even we'll get to here next week, as we see Jesus on the cross, Mark does not tell us about the extreme physical suffering that would have been endured by anyone who was going to be crucified, even before he got to the cross. Jesus would have been tied up and whipped and had his flesh torn before he ever would have gone to Golgotha. And that's why we'll see that a man carried his cross him. So Jesus suffered immensely here, and Pilate, we're told, delivered him up to be crucified. And so here is a man, Pilate, who can see the sinful schemes of the people. He knew the right thing to do. He could see that injustice was being carried out, but he failed to release an innocent man. He was motivated by fear. Scared of the crowd that it might become a mob and turn on him. He wanted to do what was politically expedient. We see that still today, don't we? And he did what was evil. That's politics then. That's politics today. But in the process of all that was taking place that day, Pilate did not just have any man killed. He had the Son of God, the author of life, put to death 
And brothers and sisters, that is why he is remembered. The last two points I want to make have to do with Barabbas. The man that Mark tells us is in prison. said he committed murder in the insurrection. And so we don't know anything particular about this insurrection. We know that they took place from time to time. The Jews would get tired of being oppressed by the Romans who were occupying their land and a group of zealots or just a group of people who were tired of this would rise up against them and riot. That's what eventually caused the Jewish revolt in AD 66 and then the destruction of their temple in 70 by the Roman army. And it seems that this man Barabbas took part in something like this during Pilate's day and in the process he killed a man in the revolt. And so as the crowd comes up to where Pilate is, what happens is is they end up choosing their savior. They suggest, as they walk up to Pilate's house, that they want this man, Barabbas, released to them. There's two men in front of them. Barabbas comes out. Jesus is standing there. Pilate here wants to release Jesus. He is certainly the lesser threat. He's an innocent man. Pilate knows it. And up to this point, the crowd has been enamored with Jesus. All of his teachings, they've watched him heal people. They've seen Jesus work miracles. They have loved the way that Jesus has opposed the leaders. The leaders that they disagree with. The leaders who rub them the wrong way. Jesus has been speaking against these people, and they like him for it. And maybe they think to themselves, this is going to be the man who delivers us. He's going to be the man who leads a revolt for us and takes back our city and brings back glory to Israel. He's a man that they can get behind, so they think. They walk up to Pilate's palace, and now what do they see? Jesus standing there, a weakened man, not saying anything. He looks like no threat to Rome. He no longer looks like a man that they can support. He's saying nothing. He's doing nothing. So if you were in that crowd that day, And there's anger inside of you. You're frustrated with the way things are going in life right now. And you're tired of these people being in your country. And now you see Jesus standing there. We thought that he was going to be the Messiah, the one that would deliver us. But now you've got Barabbas standing there next to him. He's already proven that he's willing to fight. Now which man do you want? They think that messiahs are supposed to deliver them from occupying armies. But Jesus isn't doing that now. But Barabbas, he's proven that he's a man of action. He's already been in a revolt. And he's shown that he's willing to shed some blood. So who do they want now? 
Jesus has never made any promises that he would drive out any of the Roman occupiers. He's never told his disciples or even the crowds that he would be taking them into battle for Israel's glory. He has made it clear to everyone up to this point what he has come to Jerusalem to do. He has come to die. He's made that clear. Maybe they thought that means dying battle, dying war. That's what they wanted. We're with you, Jesus. But here he is now all alone. Standing there in front of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, just like he said that he would. But they have no love for Jesus now. All it would take in this moment, as Jesus and Barabbas are standing before them, is for the crowds to do exactly as they feared, as the priests feared that they would. Just choose Jesus. He's set free. Plot foiled. Now what are they going to do? But they choose Barabbas. They choose Barabbas. I think all of this probably explains some of the practical reasons why they did choose Barabbas. They thought that this particular man would be more beneficial to them than Jesus. They chose the man that they thought would meet the need of the day. They had thought that Jesus was their man back when he was saying and doing all that powerful stuff. Why isn't he doing that right now? We saw him do some crazy things. And as he's standing here before Pilate, none of the sort. Like that's why they chose Barabbas. They thought that he might be someone who would fight for them. And so they cried out for the kind of Savior that they thought they needed right then, but it was not the suffering servant of God. And I don't think this is the main thrust of the passage, but I do think it's worth mentioning that there is such a temptation today to become part of the crowd. And there are any number of crowds to join. And the aim of each one of those crowds that are out there in our present political and cultural climate, for every one of those crowds, the aim seems to be power. And to be willing to sacrifice truth and integrity for what brings us what we really want. Power now. Now. And there's a temptation for the church to fall for the same thing. And so the crowd was willing to sacrifice Jesus for what they thought they needed the most. And that is what Barabbas represented. Jesus had come to liberate them from sin and Satan. He's made it clear what his mission is. He's fulfilling what the Old Testament spoke of him. If they just knew God's word. But the people wanted liberation from Rome. And so Jesus here in this moment becomes collateral damage. Right now, in our country, politics is the national religion. It is obvious. It just is. That is what seems to be on everyone's mind. Politics everywhere. And every night, 
it seems that most people are being discipled by some politician or news program. And that happens even inside the church of the living God. We might spend 10, 15 minutes in God's word and then four hours in front of some talking head who tells us what we're supposed to believe about our world. Politics is the lifeblood of this place right now. Hopefully not our church. But politics has our nation's ear, it has our nation's heart, and everybody wants a political savior. When a real savior is offered to them, but they don't want him. They want flesh and blood right now who gives them what they want right now. Power. And Jesus doesn't do that. But maybe he will. Or maybe she will. Anybody, it seems, other than Jesus. Because people love the world and they want to rule right now. And again, Christians feel this temptation. You can see it on social media. You can hear it in conversations. Tired of being left outside the table, wanting a place, wanting a voice. And if we have the voice, fine. But we will not sacrifice our integrity to have it. We must suffer in this life, but we don't want to suffer. We want to rule, we want power, and maybe in the process we steamroll a few people to get what we want. They can become collateral damage. Well, God has not called us to that. God has told us what our role in this society is going to be. It will be the weak, suffering servants of God following in the footsteps of our Savior. And maybe we win hearts and souls along the way. That's our calling. But it's not to win a nation or to be in power. It's to collect people for a kingdom that is outside of this world. But so many people don't want that. They want others to be able to see the power that they have right now. So that becomes their religion. And that takes their hearts. We know that this side of the cross, that the scheme of God in this world is that weakness begets power. Weakness, suffering begets power. That is embedded into the code of Jesus' kingdom, and the world wants nothing, nothing to do with that. But the church does not lean on the wisdom of the world. We don't trust in politics or in the next voting cycle. We will participate, maybe, but we will not trust in that because we do not need a worldly power. We do not have a political party. We don't have one. We don't want one. We've got something better. A dying and resurrected Savior who promised us a better kingdom than what we could ever have in this world. And we are looking forward to that. And whatever comes between now and then comes by the hand of God. And we accept it as His will. But we will not sin to get power in this world. Jesus Christ did not do so. He died for sinners. And we will suffer as we follow along behind him. 
And we draw men and women into that better kingdom as we preach the gospel of this suffering servant. And we will wait until Jesus brings his kingdom with him. We will not establish it. He will give it to us. So what a comfort to us in a world right now that looks so upside down, twisted, backwards, falling apart, that we have the promises of God. When he comes, he'll bring his kingdom with him, and he'll set everything straight. We just are called to be faithful right now. So brothers and sisters, don't be anxious. Don't lose your mind if your side does not get its way. Trust. Be okay with weakness. Your God is on his throne and his plan is being worked out right in front of your eyes. And he does not use the wisdom of the world. He has his own way of seeing things. Lastly, the sinless for the sinful. Just a couple of things about Barabbas. In some ancient manuscripts in Matthew, or from Matthew, we are told that Barabbas' first name was Jesus. We know that Barabbas wasn't his first name. We know that it was his second name, as we might call it. You know, in Hebrew, or in Jewish tradition, Bar means son of. And so Jesus would have been known in Nazareth as Jesus Bar Joseph, or something like that. Jesus, son of Joseph. And if you remember, Simon Peter's original name is Simon Bar Jonah, Simon, son of John. So if those manuscripts from Matthew were the original, and they might be, and Barabbas' first name was Jesus, that would make this story even more ironic. Because Pilate would have been asking the crowd that day, which Jesus do you want? Which one? we got two Jesuses here. And Jesus' name means deliverer, it means savior. So even so, he would have said, which savior do you want? But even if those manuscripts aren't the original, there's something about Barabbas' name that's still ironic. He is Bar-Abbas, son of the father. So Pilate was asking, in a sense, do you want this son of the father or that son of the father? And we know what they chose. But in so doing, the exchange of Barabbas for Jesus gives us a picture of us in the story. It gives us a place to locate ourselves here. Because the sinless Jesus was delivered up for punishment. While the sinner, Barabbas, was set free. The guilty was released and the guiltless was crucified. 
This is an illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you are Barabbas. You deserve death. But you have the opportunity to go free while Jesus suffers and dies in your place. So as we look at this text right now this morning and we see Barabbas here, I am asking you, can you see yourself in this story? Can you see your heart condition in this story? And are you willing to confess it. I am Barabbas, a murderous insurrectionist who can become a son of the Father only by the grace of God. But that's his offer. We get the opportunity to be children of the Father through the death of the true Son of the Father. An exchange took place that day. This man went free. We never hear from Barabbas again. But I do believe there is a reason why all four writers of the gospel show us this man. Of all things they could have showed us that day. Why? Because they want us to see that that's us. That because of Jesus Christ... And his willingness to be bound and delivered up, to not say anything, to not fight back, to not scream back at their accusations that these men are all liars, set me free. I'm an innocent man, just like me and you would have done. That's what we'd have been doing. We'd have been screaming. Not Jesus. He takes it. He's willing to be scourged and beaten bloodied a mess, and then be crucified for us so that you and I, as Barabbas, can be set free. Can you see that? So as we prepare to leave this morning, that's the one thing I'd like for you to take away from all of this, the grace of God that sets sinners free and has his son, the perfect lamb, punished That's the gospel. That's it. In a nutshell, you don't earn anything. You're guilty before God. You're standing before him. And he says, if you trust in my son, he will stand in your place and suffer what you should have suffered because I love you. Will you receive the love of God and confess that indeed you are Barabbas? This is good news. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that exposes us, shows us as the sinners that we are. We think that we are the hero in the story often. We try to steal glory from you. We like our names confessed as being great, and you are constantly, graciously, mercifully 
turning us to see Jesus Christ in all that he is for us. Thank you. And may we give you the praise as we confess this morning that we are the sinner in the story. That our hearts are often always set in rebellion, stewing over sin, you looking down upon us, willing to give us mercy, and then changing our hearts to be factories of righteousness only because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Remind us again, God, that we are products of grace. And we will sing your praises forever because of this. We will rejoice in Jesus Christ always. He is an everlasting fountain of grace and kindness towards sinners like us. Give us eyes to see him, to love him, and to rejoice in him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.